Super Talk Mississippi media production. Spring is in the air, and that means it's time to refresh your wardrobe with the season's hottest trends at the Black Sheep Boutique. Don't blend in this spring. Stand out with the Black Sheep Boutique with two locations to serve you in Tupelo or Saltillo or online at theblackshepboutiquetupelo.com. It's time for True American Heroes for the Record with Jack Rutland. Another exclusive on Super Talk Mississippi 102.1 FM. Many of our heroes have taken their stories with them to the grave. But this show is about the stories and personal experiences of these veterans. Welcome. It's an honor for me today to have Mr. David Gibson, who uh, is no stranger to this community and to the folks around Lincoln, Lawrence County. Uh, David, thank you for coming in to visit with us. Well, I, it's good to be here. <laughs> well, David's from my generation, so I'm really excited to hear some of the stories because uh, uh, he is, uh, uh, is a Vietnam veteran and uh, served our country wearing the uniform of the United States Army uh, during that conflict. And for 20 years, you were, you were, in the, you were, a, uh, you were a full-termer. You went the, the 20-year route and retired from the Army, correct? Yes. Uh, after I did my first, first tour, and then I decided that's what I wanted to do for a living, so <laughs> I re-enlisted and stayed. Okay. Well, that's awesome. But we, I want to I give folks a little background on you because it was really interesting because when you said where – I asked where you were from, and you said, I'm from out in Ole. Well, I knew exactly where you were talking about. So tell us a little bit of your childhood and growing up, your parents and your siblings, and, uh, and, and, and to just give us a, a frame of reference as to who we're talking about. I came from a very large – farm family. I have 11 brothers and sisters. Awesome. My father was named Richard. My mother was named Tira. We lived on the only hill between Nola and Fair River. And uh, <laughs> I went to school in Monticello. And, uh, okay. and right out of high school, I went into the Army. Well, that, that's interesting. I mean, you know, you're a, you, you were raised on a farm and you were a country boy. And uh, what drew you to the what, did you have other family members uh, or siblings in the military what drew you to the army i had a brother-in-law that was a paratrooper he retired a sergeant major married my sister and uh-huh. i thought he was the coolest thing going so <laughs> I, and he was uh, a paratrooper he was in the 82nd airborne at the yeah. time and uh, yeah. so i decided that's what i wanted to do so so was he was in the military when he married your sister? Yes, he was. So you were around all that military stuff, that jargon and the and the, and the stories. So you were you were getting it fresh from him. Yeah, you know, and and seeing he had a car, and he would let me <laughs> date in his car. So that, that's kind of what drew me to him. <laughs> well, that's interesting. So you 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 decided to right out of high school, you decided to enlist in the army, and you went to the. Uh, Selective Service Board, or to the Recruitment Board, I guess to the Army Recruitment Center, and uh, and and how did that process go? Do you remember where you went? Where you had to go to Jackson, or would you do that in Monticello or Brookhaven? No, no Brookhaven. They had a recruiting station uh, down where the old White House Cafe used to be. Oh yeah, and uh, I went there and and enlisted there. Hey, one story about uh, my growing up that. 
all my buddies uh, I didn't go the second grade we had a little old country school and there wasn't but two people in the second grade and so they just put me in the third and I skipped the second grade so every time my friends uh, run across something I don't know they'll say they taught that in the second grade <laughs> so you graduated with 11 years of school yes that's awesome uh Okay, so you, you, you enlisted here at, in Brookhaven at the recruiting uh, office and, and joined the Army. Uh, did they give you any options about where you what, – about what year was that? Um, this was 1958, okay, first 19, part of 58, January 58. Okay, so did they give you many options about uh, where you would go or, or what you would do in the Army, or did they just say, let's go to boot camp? No, since, since I joined Airborne Unassigned, you know, we only had two Airborne divisions, mm-hmm. 82nd and 101st, mm-hmm. and so you had to go to one or the other if you were going Airborne, so I knew I would be going to one place or the other. So yeah. Did you really know what you were doing when you decided to get an airborne? I mean, those are those crazy guys that jump out of perfectly well running and operating airplanes. <laughs> well, yeah, but you know, when you fly with some of these Air Force pilots, you know, it's it's a lot better to jump out of it than ride it. You know, <laughs> well put, well put. So uh, okay, so you you did you you did choose the airborne, and, yeah. and they they let you go. So you went yeah. to jump school. Yeah, I went from went through basic training Fort Carson, Colorado. Went mm-hmm. to AIT at Fort Jackson, South Carolina, mm-hmm. and I got assigned. Back then, you went to uh, your unit, and then went to airborne school out of your unit. So okay. I went. I got assigned at a five hundred four Fort Bragg, and uh, went to jump school at Fort Bragg. Now, since then, they've consolidated. And Correct. Jump school is at Fort Benning now, but. I well know that because I worked there for several years. We'll get into that later. Sure. So, so that is that is the, the that's a hundred. I'm a hundred first airborne. Yes. And uh, and and so you went to you joined the hundred first, and then they signed your jump school to you. Uh, yeah. Tell us a little bit about this, this was in the eighty second. Now to start with, not the hundred first. Oh, I was I'm sorry. Hundred first later on in Vietnam. Okay. Tell us a little bit about jump school. What's that experience like? Uh, about three weeks of torture, uh, <laughs> physical training, and, and, uh, and of course, uh, back then you had a, one week of nothing but physical training. They just ran you to death. Mm. Back then, you know, in peacetime, uh, our service we, during peacetime, we geared down, and in wartime, we gear up. So it was geared down at the time. It was after Korea, you know, and all that. So they didn't care where you made it or not. You know, gotcha. and uh, so probably the training was intense to, to get you ready, but also to send you home if you weren't jump material. That, that that's right. You know, they want to weed out the ones that really yeah. don't want to be there. So, gotcha. Uh, gotcha. So so all right. I, I've, I'm I'm a little bit familiar with jump schools. I've seen a little stuff on that, and know a few guys. And so you know, when they finally said you're ready to jump, do you remember that first jump? Oh yeah, you always remember your first jump. <laughs> Can you describe it to us? I mean, what were y'all, what were y'all jumping out of? What type of airplane was it then? We we were using C one thirties and C one nineteen. Okay, okay. C one nineteen is the one that has the double boom on the back. That's right. It, it Einstein said couldn't fly because was that the was that what they call the old box car the old flying, flying box, box car? car yeah flying yeah box those are antique they, they don't even exist anymore. <laughs> That thing would sit on the runway and and they'd rev it up. And you could you could hear bolts rattling in it. <laughs> uh, 
And and when they would take off, they would go out over the old division area if the wind was right. And I swear that you could almost step out onto the top of the buildings. They would just barely clear the buildings. Oh. So, but All right, so I was your glad first when they was got phased out. So your first jump though was you remember how high y'all actually went? Twelve hundred fifty feet. All all your military training jumps twelve hundred fifty feet out of fixed wing and fifteen hundred feet out of helicopter. Okay. Takes a little while. Takes a little longer for the chute to open out of a helicopter. That's the reason you go a little higher. A little bit higher. And okay. that gives you that gives you time to activate your reserve if something goes wrong. So how many jump? How many jumpers? How many troopers were on the, on one plane back then? The LC one nineteen well, depends on aircraft. Uh, let me see a C one thirty held sixty four. Right. And uh, but the old box car was a lot smaller. Yeah, seems like twenty seven thirty two something okay. like that. Uh, and your first jump was on an old box car. Yeah. Man, this was 50 years ago now. Uh, that's right. Okay. So so you, they get you up to altitude, and uh, I'm, I'm sure your your uh, sergeant yeah. stands you up. You check your – everybody checks parachutes. And, yeah, you have a jump master. I became one later on. You have a jump master that gives all the jump commands, and, and he stands you up and hooks you up and, and uh, watches for the light and tells you when to go, and you go. And – See, the first airplane that I ever went up in, I jumped out of it. So <laughs> That's the first time you'd ever flown? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's the first time I'd ever flown. And uh, they had a drainage ditch down the middle of the drop zone. It was uh, there at Fort Bragg. And there was a bunch of weeds growing up. And, you know, being from Nolan, I thought it was trees <laughs> and until I got down far <laughs> enough to see that it was just tall weeds. <laughs> but, uh yeah, jumped out of the first one. So, so was it terrifying or was it fun or both? Kind, kind of both. Uh, okay. You know, they they have you where you're, you, you're trained. You're trained up. Prepared. And you, you trust your equipment. That's right. But there's still some apprehension. Sure. There's still some apprehension. Jumping out of a perfectly operating aircraft, that, that takes a little challenge. Did you, do you all pack your own parachutes? No, no. They, they have a detachment that that's all they do is mm. pack parachutes okay all right so you, you finished jump school and uh what's your next assignment well shortly after i got out of jump school uh i'm in the 504 and uh they had a, a program then where they would replace an entire unit in germany with a unit mm-hmm. so i went to germany mm-hmm. with a 504 right, right. Uh, we were in battle groups at that time not battalion so the mm-hmm. two battle groups 504 505 went to germany i was in mainz germany 505 was across the river in wiesbaden everybody knows where mm-hmm. wiesbaden is mm-hmm. where the hospital is there mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but uh so how long you were there how long two years two, two years two years is two years unaccompanied tour my wife did go over with me, awesome. but I had to pay for it myself and all that, yeah. you know, so I only had to put in a two-year tour over there. Okay, so from Wiesbaden or from Germany, where where were you assigned? I came back to Fort Bragg to the 503rd. The notable thing that happened there is, is I'll just try to hit the highlights. That was when the Cuban Missile Crisis came up. I remember that well, yeah. And uh, so I spent 24 Miserable hours in a parachute at Eglin Air Force Base, waiting to jump into a sugarcane field in Cuba. So you jumped into Cuba? No. We oh, okay, we you were go. prepared to. We were prepared to. <laughs> That's right. Hey, it didn't ever happen. It, it didn't happen. Thankfully, thank goodness. Yeah. So was, what year was that? You remember, David? Uh, yeah, it had to be sixty, right? Something like be, that. Yeah, it had to be nineteen sixty. 
because I came back, yeah, 60, the latter part of 1960. Yeah. After that, I applied for ranger school and uh, got accepted for ranger training. And I went through ranger training, and I was enlisted on a graduate of my ranger class. So Awesome. Right after that, they had a change uh, turnover in personnel, and they drafted me back into the ranger department as an instructor. <laughs> and that's where I spent most of my, the rest of my career when I wasn't overseas fighting. And they were, I spent the rest of my career in the ranger department. Okay. All right. Well, this is awesome. We're, we're talking with David Gibson, retired United States Army, uh, and uh, we're going to be right back after this short break. Welcome back. Today, I'm honored to have with me Mr. David Gibson, who is no stranger to the Lincoln County and Lawrence County folks, born out at or raised out at Noli, uh, and, and uh, a veteran and a retired Army personnel and a veteran of Vietnam. And he's been telling us some neat stories about his experience in, in, uh, in the service. We're, we're, we're leading up to the Vietnam conflict, but I want to hear a little bit more about your, you know, you were, you were an instructor, you were training after uh, being trained as a, a paratrooper, uh, part of the Airborne. Uh, but tell us a little bit more. I, I think it's really neat the way you kind of went up through the ranks because you didn't have ROTC or, or anything like that in college. You, you worked your way up through the ranks. Isn't that right, David? That, that, that's right. And I, I was in the Ranger Department. I had made uh, SART first class, and Vietnam started revving up. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, Small unit leaders are in high demand sure. during during combat time, and uh, so my superiors encouraged me to go to OCS. I, I had qualifications to go to OCS. And OCS is Officer, Officer Candidate, Candidate School. School, right? So I went to Officer Candidate School, finished third in my class, awesome. and uh, I went from there back. Believe it or not, back to the Ranger Department to the Florida camp as an instructor, and then went from there to Vietnam on wow. my first tour of duty. Okay, so what your rank out of OCS was second lieutenant? Second lieutenant. Okay, and and then you get the notification that you're headed for Southeast Asia for Vietnam. Yes. Were you? Did you have an assignment at that time, or did you get there and then they assigned you? What happened in that process? I, I had an assignment from from the start from the Department of the Army. Uh, I was passed, I underqualified, and I went to, this was my first tour of duty. I went to the 1st Aviation Brigade in Pleiku as a Pathfinder Detachment Commander. I had a 20-man Pathfinder Detachment. Okay, let's back up. What's a Pathfinder? Explain that to the audience. Pathfinder is is really a, a field operating tra- air traffic controller. Uh, they would insert us when they were going to make a combat, they call it a combat assault, where they take the helicopter, deliver the troops to the field. Mm-hmm. Uh, we would go in ahead of them, secure the, make sure it was secure. We weren't equipped to fight now. We would just go in and recon, make sure it was secure. Okay, wait a minute, wait a minute, David. I got to back up. You, you weren't prepared to fight, but you were inserted ahead of the main group that was going to be coming in. What did they expect you to do? Just hide and watch? Is that what the Pathfinder was all about? If they couldn't extract us with helicopters, we had to E&E, escape and evade, and get out of the area. We had to do that one time. Oh, my goodness. And uh, I spent a night on a 8-inch artillery base, and I think that's where my hearing <laughs> went bad. My goodness. So Pathfinders actually went in ahead of a, a, a major of, uh, action. 
Yes. And and you were like recon, but you were doing it from a distance, and, and you were able to – and you had how many men when you went in? How many were in the insertion? Well, well for each one, we would take about five with us. It was, it was just a small group, five Ooh. people. I, you know, the 20 men that I had was four teams, and, it, and it, only one team would go in. But uh, we we had weapons to defend ourselves, sure. but but we we didn't have enough firepower. Well, no, to fight no, that's anybody. right. <laughs> you know, so, so they you were just there to kind of hide in the bushes and be the eyes. That's it. Of those that were coming behind you. That's it. And, wow. And then we would we would guide the aircraft in, you know, and do the air traffic control thing. Wow. Okay. So. How long did you stay with the Pathfinders the whole time the that whole, first tour? That that whole year, there was a lot of interesting things happened, and uh, that will be another time. We'll we get into that another time. But, well, uh, tell me this now. You were talking about there was one time where you had the E and E. Yeah. So, can you can you tell us a little bit about that experience? What happened? How did you get cut off where you couldn't get out? Well. There, there, the we call it a hot LZ. It was yeah. hot, and we knew if if we brought the aircraft in, they were going to get shot at. So we we, you know, I I was pretty good at map reading, and they told me where the nearest friendly unit was, and we we cut out and on foot and went there. My goodness, how long did it take you to get out? A day or two? Two days. Two days. Two days. And you were you were. We had food. We had rations with us. But you, but you were not sleeping in friendly territory. There was there was enemy probably not right up on you. They didn't know you were there. They would have been after you, but they were probably all in that area where you were. You just had to keep your eyes open. You know, it, it, that's a funny thing about it. You you get acclimatized to that, and you're you're not in constant fear. You know, you're apprehensive. Well, you know that's 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 a neat thought, but at the same time, you have extra responsibility now. You are responsible for other lives. You're an officer. You're these guys look to you to make decisions. That had to be a little bit of an extra burden to somewhat. It, it's a heavy responsibility knowing that the decisions that you make may may cost somebody their life, or a decision you make may save somebody their life. Yeah. You know, but uh, it, it, it's an awful, awesome responsibility that. And I guess you, you go carry. back to your training, don't you? I mean, oh, they train goes, you how yes. to make good decisions, and you follow those training. And I guess on occasion you may have to follow a gut feeling, but your training is what you lean on. Yes, and I was fortunate enough that that I had been around long enough and had enough experience that that I think it was easier on me than yeah. it w- was on s- some other people. How old were you then, David? Well, I was when I let me see. Uh, I must have been twenty three the first time I went to Vietnam, and because I was twenty five the second time, and I was an old man in the country. That's what I was about to say. You you probably had a bunch of eighteen, nineteen, oh, twenty year olds they, that, they that looked were. to you. They they all were. Wow. As a matter of fact, when I see the statue up in in Washington, that's my first impression. Those people are too old. Ah, good they, point. Good point. Yeah, I know the statue you're talking about. I've stood yeah. there by it. So okay, let's let's wrap up this first tour because I want to really get into this second tour because this is where it's really really interesting. Uh, the second tour, I mean, well, at the end of this first year, you rotate out and you were back in the states for how long? Uh, for one year. One year. I went Fort Gordon, Georgia, basic training company, uh, running basic trainers through uh, eight week cycles, and uh, I did that for a year and then got orders to go back to Vietnam. Okay, so now though. You're going back not as a pathfinder. No. 
I'm going back as a, I, I, I didn't know what I was going to be when I left, but as it turned out, I was going to, went back as a rifle company commander. Rifle company commander. So that means you're right in the middle of everything. And I, and I use this as an affectionate term. Uh, you're, you were dealing with a bunch of grunts. That's it. Well, ground pounders. Ground grunts. pounders. That's right. The men who do Grenade the fighting. chunkers. The ones that do the fighting. So let's, let's talk just a little bit about that, that tour. And, and then we're going to set the stage. We're going to actually do a third segment. So we'll set the stage for that. Uh, you get over there, uh, and you're a first lieutenant by then, I think, or maybe a captain. Which... I, I had made captain by the time I got okay. over there. And, I, and, and I've heard this now. You may correct me, but I've heard that a, a life expectancy of a, of a company commander in Vietnam was how long? I've heard it was just a few weeks. It, it, I, don't, I don't know the exact length, but it was short. I know this. I was the only one in my battalion that made it all the way through. Good gracious. The rest of them that were there with me, uh, as a matter of fact, I evacuated a couple of them I, that got killed. A good friend, mm. John Gay, got killed. Mm. Uh, All right, so let's get over. Let's get this second tour started. You're in Vietnam now. Okay. I re- and, and you're an infantry command, a company commander. Yes. I got assigned to the 501st in the 101st Airborne Division, the 1st Battalion of 501st. Uh, I reported into my company command or to my battalion commander, Colonel Rogers, and uh, he told me, "says I don't have a job for you right now, but uh, come back, come back tomorrow, and we'll see." And that night, they woke me up and said, "Charlie Company Commander got killed." Said you're going out and taking over Charlie Company. So I went to the field the next morning. We were uh, the first part of that tour. We were down in. in, southern south of way and it was mostly dealing with vc transporting rice and all that we were ambushing and and doing that sort of thing and then we moved from there out to the ashow valley and uh you know the north vietnamese they were moving supplies mm-hmm. down the ho chi Minh trail right bringing it in through the ashow valley and we were out there trying to disrupt that so how yeah. long would you stay in the field at one time I, I, did it vary depending on the on the assignment we we lived in the field. So you uh, went out. That, 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 that's what I'm trying to get. When you left friendly territory and went out in the field, how long would you stay? I, I stayed out there nine months. I, out of nine months, I spent mm, maybe three nights in, back in a rear area. The rest of the time was in the field. You were in a combat zone all this yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. We we. You know, you know, and that's one thing a lot of people don't realize is the challenge of, of being a foot soldier is is just taking care of everyday things, personal hygiene and food and all of that. And because you're living out of your rucksack, you know, you just throw it down. And well, I've often heard it said by old soldiers that the most important thing they carry is their socks, a change of socks, because oh, their yeah. feet is how yeah. they move. Yes, we we would actually wear fatigues until they just came apart. And they would bring us in new, and and we take and pile up the old ones, burn them, and put on the new ones. And my goodness, we we probably smelled pretty bad, you know, <laughs> because there was wasn't much water. You had to take a bath and steel helmet and all that, you know. But, uh, so you were you were you were pretty much in the field this whole second tour. You were well, out in the jungle, out doing, in the field. Doing now the last couple of months, I came back in to S3 operation. You know, they sent a new commander out. Mm-hmm. I stayed out there three months longer than I was supposed to. So we've got just a minute here, and we're going to end this segment, and we're going to come back. So a lot of engagements, I'm sure, a lot of firefights. Yes. Um, 
you know, any of them stand out where you just thought we're in serious trouble more than probably more than one, but any that just really stands out in your, in your mind. Cause you had a, how many men did you have? 150. So you had, you had a lot of guys you were responsible for any of those firefights really get, you weren't sure you were going to get out of it. Well, yes. It, the, the one that we're going to talk about for where the guy got the medal of honor, uh, Wow. Uh, it, that's when okay. the rubber met the road. Okay. Uh, it, it, that's going to be real intense. Well, if that's one and the same, we'll talk about that in this next segment. We're actually yeah. doing, uh, radio audience, I want you to know we're doing an extra segment to hear David share his experience. David was a company commander of a young man that he recommended for the Congressional Medal of Honor, our highest award for valor. And uh, I want, we want to hear that story. So uh, we're going to invite you to come back and hear this third segment on the next program of true american heroes for the record i'm honored to have with me mr david gibson from right here in our own hometown and uh, we'll see you for that next segment in just a little while good morning welcome to true american heroes for the record and today we're actually doing something just a little unusual we're going to have a third segment with one of our local neighbors mr david gibson who was a vietnam veteran and a uh, uh, served two tours in Vietnam and in the Airborne as well as a Ranger uh, unit and uh, and and David, we wanted to do this third section because you you and I have talked some and I'm just really impressed when you were telling me about some of the men in your unit because you were in, it was a rifle unit it was an infantry unit and you were in the jungles the whole time you were over there that second tour which was about a year most of the total time you were there. But I wanted you to tell me a little bit about your daily operations and the men that you served with, because there's one in particular we're going to talk about, but I wanted you to have an opportunity to share this segment here this morning uh, about those guys and what it was like to lead them, because you were the com- company commander. Yes. I, I, to me, of course, for me, it was the greatest bunch of men that ever lived. Hmm. Uh, we were out in, uh, I'll start out by telling you, we were out in the Ashow Valley, and uh I got a call to to come in and uh, be at a pickup point, and they picked us up and flew us up to to Tam Key. Now, I had uh, one of my platoon leaders two weeks ago passed away. His name mm-hmm. is Dan O'Neill. He passed away up in in Pennsylvania. I was unable to go to his funeral, I, I, but I participated. Uh, we in his funeral with with some people that I knew. Mm-hmm. They had them to go in my place. I had Don Gurley was was a platoon leader. Mm. Don Gurley came to me out of ROTC, and I've told Don this face to face. So he wasn't very good when he first came. He was overweight and out of shape, and green, and green, and didn't know a whole lot. <laughs> Turned out to be one of the finest platoon leaders Army ever had. Mm. He 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 did me proud later on. Uh, Dan O'Neill. Then the, my third platoon leader w- was a enlisted man his name was isaac hayward african-american lives over in columbia south carolina i talked to him three or four days ago as a matter of fact he retired he stayed in he retired a sergeant major Mm. he had his platoon every time they would send me a platoon leader the first one didn't last but one day The second one lasted two or three days, and I told the battalion commander, I said, I'm, I'm satisfied with Sergeant Hayward. Don't send me any more lieutenants. <laughs> See? So, so he, he was my third platoon leader for the rest of the time over there. That's awesome. As uh, fine a soldier as you ever wanted to meet. Hmm. 
he went on and, like I said, became a sergeant major, retired sergeant major. And we we stay in touch. Uh, I've had people from all over North Carolina, South Carolina. It uh, uh, the one uh, Jesse Vera, he was from San Antonio, Texas. Tex Laraway was from San Antonio, and every time every time I talk to Tex, I laugh about. I don't know if you you remember the movie Forrest Gump. Oh yeah, you know he said oh, yeah. he had a guy from Texas. I don't know where he was from. Or they uh, had a rather had a man we called Tex. Called Tex. We don't yeah, know where he was we, from. We don't That's know where right. He was from. That's right. So we had Tex Laraway. But he was and from Texas. He was from San Antonio, Texas. Yeah. He, you know, uh, McClendon from South Carolina, Perkins from South Carolina. Uh, I, we we have a web uh, web page. We stay in touch. And uh, well, David, it's it's obvious you get close to these guys, and especially when you think about. I can remember, you know, uh, I was never in combat, but I remember uh, in in some sporting teams where you have to really work hard and dedicate yourself. You get close to those guys. I can only imagine what it's like in a combat setting. You just like brothers, really. It is truly a band of brothers. Yes, it is. And see, and that relationship between men and commanders. Now, every one of them would tell you I was tough. I was tough on them because I was trying to keep them alive. Mm. And uh, and after it was all over, they understood that. They realized that and appreciated it after it was all over. I wasn't friends with them then. I was their commander, but I'm friends with them now. All right, that's a great point. But I want us to get into, because I want to have plenty of time to talk about some of these engagements, especially the one where you had the young man who mm-hmm. won the Medal of Honor. I guess we need to start with that so we'll be sure to have plenty of time. Okay. Tell us about what led up to this event, this, 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 this engagement that led to this young man being awarded this incredible honor. Okay, I'll, I'll go through it as, as best as I remember. We were, we, we were out in Ashow Valley. They called and they and they flew us up to Tamkey. The AmeriCal division was uh, in trouble. The NVA now, all, prior to prior to this time, right. all my engagements would had been with v, uh, the Viet Cong, VC. VC. Right. Now we're going to deal with the NVA. NVA Army. regulars. That's right. Yeah, North Vietnamese Army. Right. Regular Army. So they flew. They flew us up there. They had ordinance up there where you could get new weapons. If you didn't wasn't satisfied with your weapon, you could just pick you up a new one. It, radios, all of that. They even had personnel there so you could change your last wheel if you wanted it. Now, you're talking about a confidence builder. That's a confidence builder. Mm. But then we – and uh, they uh, had ice cream and Coca-Cola. Good grief. And, but I had to go to a briefing, so I missed out on the ice cream and Coca-Cola, and that's been a regret all my life. <laughs> we, uh, I went, we got, got our orders, and we made a, and our mission was, there was three companies, A, B, and C company. I was, Charlie Company, I was in the middle, and uh, we were going to go and, it, out to a firebase professional and give them some relief. They had completely encircled that firebase, dug in, made concrete bunkers, all of that. The, the, North, the North Vietnamese Army. Okay, so this, this firebase you're going to is already totally surrounded. It's surrounded. So you're probably going into a hot LZ to begin with. Oh, yes, it was hot. Go ahead. Uh, we, we, we made our combat assault into the LZ. When we hit the LZ, made enemy contact immediately. They fired on us. We returned fire, and uh, then they withdrew. 
So we didn't have any further incident that day, spent that night. And uh, the next day we, we were taking resupply. And I, I had a procedure that I'd go through when I'd take resupply to make sure the area was secure. Sergeant Hayward took his platoon. Jesse Vera was in his platoon, by the way. And they went around to check the area out. We were down taking, and we caught an outpost eyeballing us from up on the ridge. And they came up behind them, killed seven or eight. And uh, we took our resupply, and we all, you always want to set up on high ground when you can. Sure. You want the high ground advantage. So we went up on Hill 187 and dug in. And I remember the men griping a little bit about having to dig in because it's real rocky. But uh, I, I knew that the situation we were in, we needed to get ready. So after we got dug in, settled in, uh, I got the platoon leaders, platoon sergeants up, and we'd always have a little meeting, you know, to make sure that everybody knew what was going to take place during the night and so we could defend ourselves. And while we were in that meeting, this gong rang down in the valley. And I said, what in the blank was that? And one of the sergeants had been over there in the first cab. He said, that's the way they signaled an attack when I was in the cab. So I said, everybody get back to their position. They got back to the position, and here they came. Wow. They started mortaring us, and we was taking— What time? Is this the middle of the night or early evening? This is early evening. Okay. It's just just right at dusk dark. Okay. So they started mortaring us, but, but their mortars weren't very accurate. And then they, then they came at us with a ground attack. Well, we, we successfully beat them back there without—we didn't take any casualties. And— uh, so they went back down the hill and, and reorganized, and here they came again. Well, this time they got two people got through our perimeter. We killed them inside the perimeter, and uh, we beat them back again that time. And uh, I got on the radio and called battalion. I said, hey, we're going to need some help. We, we're running low of ammunition. I don't think we can survive the night. So they, they set us up. Uh, a puff. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar. It's a C-130 loaded with many weapons. Uh, with the whole cargo space is ammunition, and it's loaded with many guns. Puff the magic dragons. What that's we used to it, call that's them. That's it. Uh, you know, their claim to fame is one burst. They'll put around in every square foot of a football field. Mm-hmm. So that puff flew. They a couple of them relieved one another and flew above us all night and kept. They tried. Two more times for to for an attack, but it puff put a quick end to that. Wow! So w- we survived the night, and, and there was uh, the next. You know, we were going to move out the next day, and and but uh, we had got a little ahead of the other two companies, and uh, and the battalion commander told me to stay there another day, another night. And uh, we we hadn't properly disposed, and it kind of got a little rank. Now, I, 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 the next morning, I said, we got to leave. So we left, and we went on. And uh, we spent the next night, and then the next day, which was the 31st of May, we my point stopped, and they called me up front, and I could look across, and you could see the enemy enemy across it was we were on higher ground it was about a hundred yard rice paddy mm. this this was uh the terrain up there was it was you know 
Vietnam is a lot like the United States. You know, you, you got the northern part, the different, central part, and the southern different part. Different And it, this was kind of the foothills. And, uh, it, and the rice paddies up there were usually small and, and uh, just individual farmers, you yeah. know, yeah. for their own yes. use. So it had about a 100-yard rice paddy. And then it went up on a ridge, and I could see them on the ridge up there. In the meantime, uh, B Company had a platoon coming down that ridge, and they engaged in a firefight, and then they lost communications with, with uh, that platoon. Battalion commander called me and told me, said, you, you, you need to attack. And I said, you want me to attack with no artillery support, no air support? And he said, well, we don't know what, what those people's circumstance is from B Company that's in there. said, you need to attack. So I called my platoon leaders and platoon sergeants in. I said, we need to come up with a plan of attack. And this is, I credit all my my ranger experience to this. And uh, we came up with a with an attack plan. And basically it was, I took my six machine guns and put them on higher ground. And they were going to give us cover while we crossed the rice paddy. So we, you know, set up our time, got all that coordinated and, 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 uh, we got down with myself and the rest of the platoon, put the machine guns up there, gave the signal, they cut loose, and they kept, kept them pinned. I remember telling the, the platoon leaders and the platoon so I said, look, when we start across that rice paddy, we got to go. I said, we can't let them stop us in that rice paddy. If they stop us, that's going to be the end of us. And uh, so it, it worked out. And uh, they kept them pinned. We we got across the rice paddy. We I think we lost two people in in the rice paddy, and there was a rock wall on the other side. And we climbed the rock wall. Well, an infantry unit, you know, you have platoons and squads, yep. and yep. and what you do once you get in there is is use fire, what we call fire and movement. You know, one group lays down a base of fire, one group moves, and right. and. Uh, right. So that that's what we did. We got on the wall. I, I remember going up the wall. An RPG went by my head. Mm-hmm. I remember and exploded out into the into the uh, rice paddy out there. But when we got onto the up onto the wall, we used fire and movement. It was kind of thickly vegetated in there. Yeah. And we we started easing forward. And this is when the fire team that Jesse Avera was in his. Uh, you know, there's five men in a fire team. Two of them got killed. One of them got wounded. And Jesse picked up one of the other rifles, got all the grenades from those, and he started on a personal vendetta going from bunker to bunker. And he he knocked out six by himself. Goodness. With grenades. And, uh, you know, Don Gurley put it, we, we weren't hand-to-hand, but we were, we were hand grenades and rifles at about 10 meters. Good gracious. And uh, he said, you know, he said, it's spitting distance. And we successfully took that ridge. We, we, we accomplished our mission and took that ridge. Did Jesse survive? Jesse didn't get a scratch. I didn't get a scratch. I, one jumped up out of a spider hole and fired at me and hit my fatigue pants, and, and, but he didn't, he didn't hit me. So, uh, so, it, so then you recommended Jesse for the Medal of Honor? Well, two or three days later now. Oh, sure. De- yeah. de- during periods like that, the last thing on your mind. Oh, sure, sure. His awards. But as you reflected. Yeah, you you 
you, you know, you reflect back on what happened and everything. And, and Don Gurley came and said, hey, did you see what he did? I said, I saw part of it because one of the bunkers that he knocked out was right in front of me, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, then we got together and, and found out that, you know, that he had just done it on his own. And talking to him later on, he said, well, it was either to lay there and take it or give it everything I had. So he gave it everything he had, and uh, so Don wrote up the wrote up the citation, and of course I concurred, and the battalion commander concurred, and he got awarded the Medal of Honor. Did he survive Vietnam? Yes, he did. He passed Wonderful. away about a year ago. Wonderful. He, he worked for the post office in San Antonio, Texas, and and he passed away about a year ago. As a matter of fact, he was supposed to come over to, to see me reunion. or to see you. Yeah, and. Uh, but he, but he had heart trouble, and he How passed awesome. away. Wow, that is just taking my breath. And I know we're we're about out of time, so I'm I'm going to wrap this up, David. I can't tell you what an honor it's been to have you here, um, David, who was a Vietnam veteran, two tours, Pathfinder, Airborne, uh, but the last tour uh, was company commander of a, a a group of fighting men, and one of his men showed extraordinary heroism and was awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor, our highest, our country's highest award. David, I, I want to say thank you for your service. I, I am honored to know you. Uh, I think what you did serving and leading those men, like you said, your goal was to do your job and get them out of, the, out of there safely. Uh, I thank you for your service to your country. I thank you for what you did during that time when your country needed you. And uh, it's been an honor to have you here with us today. It's been an honor to be here, and I wanted to say that uh, Senator Doty does a great job out there, and along with you, Jack, in, in honoring the veterans. And uh, I've been to some others that didn't do that, and uh, I, I appreciate that. And the next time that you're at one of these and they, they introduce the old grunt, the guy that got drafted, <laughs> give him an extra round of applause. Absolutely. They're my heroes. Absolutely. David, thank you. It's been an honor to have you, and this concludes our program. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.